Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Stunt Show here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am Daniel Gordon, son, husband, and one quarter of the amazing Stunt Show team here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And you can find the Stunt Show here every Thursday at 6 p.m. As part of this amazing team, one quarter of the time, you can find me here as I hope to bring you a small taste of the amazing life God has blessed me with, the inspiration I draw from the always entertaining world of sports, and of course, country music. Coming to you from the Nachum Siegel Studios in what my parents tell me is the historic Lower East Side, and I'm joined by David. Uh, David is in the middle of connecting with our guest on the phone, but uh, David, you can thank me uh, for the very early, although I don't know when your birthday is, birthday gift, because this is the first show that we've actually done in the studio together. I believe we were together at the OU and at YU, so you can thank me for making this one easy on you, Bli Ayanhara. If during or after this show you realize that you'd like more Daniel Gordon, please email me at daniel at nachamsegel.com. That's D-A-N-I-E-L at nachamsegel.com. Seriously, your honest feedback and comments about the show are welcomed and appreciated, and I hope this show will gain its inspiration and content from you, the listeners. Speaking of listeners, I would like to give a very quick and early shout-out to my very special favorite younger sister I never had and younger sister-in-law, Alana Wilner. Happy birthday, Alana. My life has not been the same since your sister introduced me to her wacky and crazy younger sister. Um, and thank you for always being there uh, for the fun and excitement in the family. Uh, so happy birthday, Alana. Each month, I hope to cover material from the inspiration world of sports, my one-of-a-kind life and perspective, and the deep genre of country music. So let's get down to a little business. First, to cover from the wide world of sports, before we get to our guest. Is there a better time of year in sports than right now? I challenge you to find one. Again, email me, daniel at nachlamsegel.com. Baseball season is underway. The NBA playoffs are around the corner. Most importantly, the Knicks are relevant again. The Lakers are, uh, David, I'll give a little shout-out. The Lakers are, 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 re- are wheeling and dealing right now. Kobe looks unstoppable. The Masters started today. And the truth is, I don't know that if there is a better event in sports than the Masters. So much so, although I do try to play golf, so much so that I actually listened to golf on the radio on the way here, which is just unbelievable. And the moment where they do the honorary ceremonial tea with Arnold Palmer and Gary Player, Jack Nicholas this morning was just incredible. Just incredible. So you have those things. Then, of course, uh, last weekend we finished the men's and, wisp- and, and women's college basketball national championships. Uh, we'll discuss a little bit more about, uh, quote, March Madness um, with tonight's guest in a little bit. Uh, but I wanted to get to one point. One of the things that frustrates me the most, and we're going to talk a little bit about education uh, and, and, and some of the perspectives that I have and, and some other people have on education in general, but sports has the opportunity to be a great educational moment. And we talk about this all the time on this show. And yet college basketball and college sports in general has turned into a business, and instead of embracing that business or being honest about the business, the schools have now become political about it, and they say it's not a business, they're not taking all the money, even though the schools won't. Um, exist and have the programs that they do. And one story I just want to share, um, food for thought, uh, I welcome your thoughts on this at Daniel and uh, was a story about the Louisville basketball team. So the Louisville men's basketball team won the national championship. Um, I was rooting against them because, as always, uh, I start off March Madness um, in a few pools, and I tell my wife this is going to be the year that I'm going to win, and as always I lose. Um, so I could have won some money had Louisville uh, lost. But nevertheless, Louisville wins the men's basketball championship on a Monday night. So they win Monday night. It's great. Everyone's celebrating. Rick Pitino, scandal, whatever, triumph, first guy to win with two schools, this whole thing. And he decides he wants to do something nice. He's going to take his basketball team from Atlanta, where the men's Final Four is, 
to New Orleans where the women's Final Four is to cheer on the Louisville women's team. Makes a lot of sense. They're students in school. They want to go cheer. They want to be like everybody else. And the NCAA tells Rick Pitino, you can't bring the team, even though they're going to fly back. We can do a little uh, Gamara logic here. Even though you're going to fly back to from Atlanta to Louisville, Kentucky anyway, you can't divert the plane and stop in New Orleans to cheer, to, to, to cheer for the women's team. That makes zero sense to me. So anybody who can explain that to me, Daniel and Akamsegal.com, just, just some food for thought. To me, it doesn't make any sense that we don't, we, we don't call it a business, we call it education, and yet the young men on the Louisville men's basketball team who win the championship for their school and who do a great job in the NCAA uh, can't go cheer on the women. Uh, I can't explain it. It's been bothering me ever since, uh, so I just wanted to put it out there to all of you. So, again, you are listening to the Stunt Show here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, it is now time uh, to bring in uh, tonight's guest via the telephone. Uh, tonight's guest is Dr. Carol Leventrosser. Dr. Leventrosser received her B.A. from Adelphi, her M.A. and Ph.D. in clinical psychology from LIU, Long Island University, and she has a long and distinguished career as a licensed psychologist in private practice and as a school psychologist for the over 20 years. Currently, she's a school psychologist on Long Island um, in a Long Island school district, and she is married with two children. Dr. Leventrosser, on the phone, uh, thank you for joining us. How are you this evening? Um, very well, thank you. Good evening. Good evening. So, uh, like I said, uh, anybody out there with any questions, uh, we're going to try to take them at Daniel at com. So, I don't know if you just heard, but I just spoke a little bit about uh, college basketball and March Madness. Yes, yes, I was listening. And so... Aside from the frustration I have with, the, with, with all the NCAA rules, one of the things I wanted to get to um, is about gambling um, and students and the dangers of gambling. And specifically, mm-hmm. uh, this year I was in a, a couple pools, as I mentioned. I am an adult. I make my own money. I can spend it, even though my wife doesn't like some of the ways I spend it on these things. Because <laughs> I claim I'm going to win. But we can get into the psychology of the fact that every year I start and I say, this is going to be the year. And it's not, but that, but that's for a later time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I found out that one of the pools that I was in after I got the email afterwards that a high school student actually won seven thousand dollars. Wow! And that struck me that here was this high school student. I don't know if he paid for it himself, if his parents paid for it, but it cost uh you know over a hundred dollars to get into it. And here's this high school student who's spending his money on this um on this. Pool. So can you just shed some light on general the dangers of gambling and, and what you've seen from your experience about gambling and, uh, and, and high school students? Well, I, I think the gambling, um, I mean, unfortunately, gambling in this culture has been so institutionalized with Atlantic City and, and Las Vegas, and, and unfortunately, kids probably in the media see it condoned as something that's um, exciting and interesting and, and, and socially acceptable. But I think that you know that that activity should really be limited to to adults who understand uh, what the risks are in gambling. I think it's certainly not appropriate for kids who are school age, who are high school age, and really for that matter, college age as well. I don't think it's appropriate for them to be engaged in gambling activities at that at those ages. They kids really don't have good planning skills. Um, in general, they're not making their own money. I think they're probably a little bit more prone to impulsive behavior. I think even their sense of time um, or even their sense of what, what money is worth, the value of money, I think these things are really still emerging and developing for kids at those ages. So, I mean, just for starters, for those reasons, I think it's really not a good thing for kids to be engaged in gambling of any sort. But again, like I said, it's people don't realize it, but it's really condoned in a lot of ways, um, you know, just, just culturally. And, and definitely, that's, I think, where they get it from. One of the things, I mean, it always fascinated me 
growing up listening to all of the people who did gamble, so most famously Michael Jordan and some other star athletes who even have the means but just seem to waste and spend so much money. And I think that, that, that children and teenagers say, well, it's only $20, it's only $30, but it seems to me, um, and, I, and, I, and I gather from what you're saying, that that slippery slope is, is, is ultimately what is very dangerous about it. Yeah, I think it's problematic. I think that these kids, it, it seems very exciting to them. It seems like there's some promise. And, you know, for most kids, if you say to them, if it's too, it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, they're, they're not listening to that. They're listening to the excitement of it um, and the potential to make some huge amount of money. Uh, so their, their judgment, their decision-making is really not terrific. Their planning abilities, for the most part, are not um, that fully developed, and, and there are lots of other things that they really should be focusing their, their energy and their effort on, like their schoolwork, um, positive social relationships. Uh, yeah, there are lots of other things that are much more pro-social than, than gambling. I think gambling is a slippery slope, but I mean, there are some kids, believe it or not, who will have, who will come from families where there is this almost like a genetic predisposition to an, to be impulsive, to have an impulse disorder, and so, you have to be extra careful, especially kids at the high school level, if they have any knowledge that people in their family have previously had difficulties with gambling. They need to be extra careful, really, to, to go out of their way, not to engage in that at all. Well, that certainly is something family certainly plays a role in some of the other topics we'll talk about um, in terms of substance abuse and things like that. But the other thing about where you come from, the family you come from, um, even though it seems sometimes more dangerous to come from what I would define as less means, mm -hmm. meaning a, a less affluent family. Sometimes the more affluent the family is, and the more money at the at the teenager's disposal makes it harder because they have so much money to just gamble away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so is do you have yeah, guidance I, in terms of allowance and things like that that you give uh, parents and stuff like that? No, I agree with you. It's sort of a dubious distinction to come from a family where there is a lot of affluence. There's a lot of money that kids have access to. I mean, I mean, the best way to develop kids' self-esteem in general is to have them earn money. Uh, they'll feel better about themselves. Kids who just have this free access to money will think of ways to um, to spend it that really are not productive for them. Buying, you know, fancy cars. Um, unfortunately, some kids get into substance abuse. Um, it, it, the, the value of money, I think, is something that has to come from the family and having too easy access to the money is really not a good thing. It's better to have to earn some of that money and, and not feel like you can spend it, you can gamble it, you can buy whatever you want. That some someone in the family, mother, or father, is going to be there to replace that money with another, you know, additional supply. Yeah, and uh, there's actually a very famous um, or well known, I should say, uh, video. I think it's on YouTube from Daniel Pink, mm -hmm. who's famous about, and he and he and he talks about teaching his kids about money, where he gives them allowance, and at the end of the week when they have extra allowance, he, he tries to encourage them, even though it's their money, to put some away, and he gives them interest like a bank to teach them that if at the end of the week you have $5, mm -hmm. either you can spend it or you can give daddy or the bank the $5, mm -hmm. and next week he gives them great interest rates, unlike most of us, mm -hmm. but, but but next week if you invest that money, you'll have five twenty-five. So just mm -hmm. by not spending it, you actually gain in the long run. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a fabulous idea. I think it's a fabulous idea. Kids early on, really, if they can learn the idea that by saving it, they, it's to their benefit, um, over time, they'll really learn the value of it, and they'll have some sense of, like, what different amounts are. I know that when we've taken – my kids were younger. They're now in their 20s, but we took them when they were younger on vacation. I felt like I was going to be barraging every single gift shop to spend oodles of money on these ridiculous, 
you know, often not useful sites of souvenirs. And so what we did was we gave our kids trip tickets, trip tickets coupons, in other words, and they, they wanted something um, to buy, then they would have to, we, I could on the spot determine how many tickets it would cost them to buy that. So it was, it was getting that, giving them the sense that they had to think a little bit more about how much they wanted to purchase this item. Um, and the idea also was at the end of the vacation, that was it. You know, if, if they spent all of their, their coupons on the first day of vacation, well, that was it. So, I mean, it, the idea was to teach them planning, teach them the value of money, um, and to realize that there, there's an end point with it, that it's not just this endless supply. I wrote that one down. That one's going on the uh, Gordon family, God willing, uh, parenting <laughs> tip. Again, you are listening to The Stunt Show here on the Nachum Steel Network. I'm Daniel Gordon, and I'm joined by Dr. Carol Leventrosser. You can email your questions um, uh, for me to read to daniel at nachumsteel.com. Again, that's D-A-N-I-E-L at nachumsteel.com. Uh, we're talking about parenting and, and, some, and some issues that come up with money. So one of the other ones, and, and we're talking about affluence, one of the other ones that, that strikes me um, is, and I want to come at this, each topic from a couple different perspectives, but simply from an affluence perspective, mm-hmm. um, drinking and, and drug abuse. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, just, just a little anecdote about myself, um, Miriam asked me, she said, uh, Miriam, Miriam who's the general manager at the, at the station, said to me, do you want me to find a high school student for you to have on your show? I said, no. Um, unfortunately, as a high school student, I was exposed. Um, fortunately, I was able to uh, overcome a lot of what I was exposed to and not you know, succumb to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's for a lot of, you know, just siata the shmai, I would say. But I was exposed to some things, and what I realized was friends of mine were getting like $200 a week mm-hmm. in allowance. Mm-hmm. So their parents would just give it to them. And I couldn't even I, – I used to try to think of how I would actually spend $200. Mm-hmm. If I went to a movie every day, back then movies were, let's say, $10, mm-hmm. that's $50. Even if I got Chinese food from October in the five towns where I went to school, which I love, that was only $10 a meal. So that's still you're, – you're, you're only getting around $100, $150. You still have money to bank. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was that my friends would use it or my, my, my classmates would use that money for drugs, alcohol, fake IDs, things like that. Mm-hmm. So So – that just always struck me when you give somebody the opportunity to use their money a wrong way instead of guiding your children to just kind of leave them out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and so I and definitely in earning the money, but I also think in limiting the money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something my parents did with me, and I just you know we talked about making your children earn the, earn the money, but just in terms of a strategy, my parents used. I think they were great parents, but just wanted to get your perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had to explain what I was going to use the money for, mm-hmm. meaning I came to my parents and I said they would give me my, you know, $20 for lunch money, which was, which is plenty if you get pizza one day or whatever. But then I would say, mommy and daddy, I want to go to a movie this Saturday night, so I need another 10 or I need another 12 because I want mm-hmm. to get a soda. Mm-hmm. So I think that dialogue also helped me learn the value of it and, and just budget, even though it wasn't a specific, you know, number that was given to mm-hmm. me at mm-hmm. a given time. I think, you know, th- there's so much that goes on in this culture in terms of the different messages that kids get about money. Uh, I'm just thinking of, of kids who go to college, and very often kids, college students are approached, you know, male or even on campus with on campus signups to get a credit card. Um, and it, it's really an absurd idea that in this, it, it really, in my opinion, should almost be illegal for these banks to go onto college campuses and solicit kids to sign up for credit cards when they really they don't have a job, they don't really have a way of earning money. It, it's really a way of getting them almost sort of tricking them into thinking that they can't afford to have a credit card and pay it off. I mean, it's it's a privilege, it's a big responsibility, but in a way, I think it's it's um, companies trying to take a little bit of advantage of the fact that these kids don't understand 
the value of money. They don't understand um, the idea of interest or paying something back or, or what a credit card really means. So, you know, it's, it's the most important thing is for kids to talk to their parents from an early age um, to give them an allowance when they're in elementary school. They get this money no matter what. It's not contingent on good behavior, bad behavior. They get it. It's not something you, you take away. But And the student, the child, can make a decision on their own. What do they want to do with it? You know, so you, you're not going to sort of just hand them the cash and, and not have a conversation with the student no matter what age they are. You're going to you're going to set an allowance. You could talk to your children, ask them what they think is reasonable. You know, it's good for them to be able to negotiate with their parents or be able to express to their parents what they think is fair or how they intend to spend that money. What do they think? They, how much money do they think they need? So it's in a way, if the parents have this conversation with their kids, they're they're encouraging planning. They're encouraging kids to try and justify and estimate really what you know what kinds of money do they need to spend what what's fun money um and what's necessity that's also another distinction that you want kids you know even when they're younger you want them to start to get an understanding of that that's very interesting one thing that strikes me about what you just said is not to take the money away for bad behavior meaning not use it as a as a um a, a reward and punishment system why is that something that you recommend because I think that, you know, if you, um, kids have to know that there's something that they can count on, there's some kind of consistency there. Um, if you award them this allowance and say that you've been a great kid, you're wonderful, and then you take it away when they don't behave the way that you want them to behave, they're, they're really going to be, it's, it's, it's demotivating for the kids. So, um, you want them to have some control over, over their lives. You want them to get some sense that, yeah, they can make a plan. Um, so it's just not a good idea to be able, you know, once you've, once, if you're earning an allowance, that's it. You know, this is yours. You have to make a decision about it um, and, and let it go and let it go. And in terms of communicating uh, with the, with your children and with parents, um, that leads me to the next topic, which is not necessarily money, but also the way in which certain things are viewed in your home. So we spoke about gambling before. If you know somebody in your family has a gambling addiction or something like that, mm -hmm. then that should raise a red flag. But the other thing that's very common, especially in some Jewish homes, is access to liquor. We know even, you know, obviously on Pesach and Purim and, mm -hmm. and even Shabbos, there's mm -hmm. that halachic thing. But mm -hmm. what what have you seen and what, you know, what kind of tips can you give in terms of the exposure? I mean, I just know, uh, I always tell the story. I remember when I was about six or seven, uh, no, actually older. I couldn't have been that young. There's no way I would have been able to take it down. I was probably 10. Mm -hmm. um, and my grandparents came. My, my grandparents lived in service. My grandfather used to always have schnapps on Shabbos. Right. And one time, my, my, my identical twin brother, Aaron, was, you know, urge, like uh, nudging my grandfather, saying that he wanted to try it. My grandfather was drinking wild turkey. I'll never forget this. Mm -hmm. And he gave my brother what was like literally like a drop. Like I've never seen something so small. My brother felt like his chest was burning. Right. And he's like, I'm going to die. And, Fire water. And that turned him off. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I know that's one strategy that kind of like turned him off from it. But what is your, what have you seen in terms of whether it, you know, some people give their, their, their teenagers or young adults liquor in limited quantities, some don't, um, and things like that? Well, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, in a perfect world, um, kids who are underage would not be exposed to alcohol. But I think, un unfortunately, they're, they are prone to some degree to want to experiment and try and figure what this thing is about. There's so much that they hear about it, that they, they see on TV, or they just, you know, it's something brand new, and 
the, unfortunately, young kids feel like they're invincible and they, there's something they don't understand or don't know. They want to try it out. They want to explore. So um, I think it's probably realistic to think that kids in general, teenagers, are going to want to experiment with it unless the, the child is just so anxiety-ridden. They're really just terrified and scared of it, which might not be a bad thing. But um, kids are probably going to experiment. And I do think it's it's reasonable to talk to your kids about it. Um, the best way to address any concern with uh, decision-making at, at the adolescent age is to really have a conversation with your kids. And, you know, there's a social host law now in effect in New York State so that if you're, even if you're out of the house, you're away, if your child serves alcohol to underage um, other, you know, friends, peers, anybody in your house, even if you're not home and something happens, you are liable, you're legally responsible under New York State's social host law. So, it's not as if parents can really turn their back and say, you know, hey, I wasn't home, I didn't know what was going on. They are liable, so which makes it even more important from a safety point of view and a legal point of view to have a conversation with your kids. Um, I think it's not a bad thing to, if you're going to have a family dinner, to sit down with your kids, maybe when they're a junior or a senior in high school, and pour them half a glass of wine and let them taste it, let them see that this isn't something to abuse this is something that might be part of the um, the tradition in the family if there is a special family dinner for holiday. Um, you know, you'd have to monitor, you'd have to talk to the kids about it, but I almost think it's better to let kids learn what it's about and understand it. Alcohol education is really, really important. Most kids nowadays, before they set foot on a college campus, have to go online and take some sort of alcohol education course. Um, before they can register for their classes on a college campus because colleges understand that kids need to be educated. And unfortunately, most teenagers, you know, think about getting, getting drunk or feeling tipsy or, or whatever, whatever they think is this, this drinking is going to possibly um, enable them to do, give them more self-confidence. Um, they don't really understand the biology of it at all. Um, or simply I'm, just that it's the forbidden fruit thing. I mean, you forgot well, the rush. A, it's illegal that it's it's underage. I mean, you know. No, I'm saying, you, but that gives them a rush. Sometimes it's even more than whatever they get. They say, "Oh, because I can't have it." So, so, right. so having that conversation and giving you know a, an old enough young a, a teenager mm-hmm. a little bit of wine takes away that. Oh wow, this is like it, it, it must be incredible or it must be something I have to try because there's no you, you know mm-hmm. my parents keep it locked up uh, far right. away. Right. Right. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't condone the idea that it's okay for kids to drink at home. You know, with their, if as long as my parents are home, I can drink. I think that's totally inappropriate. If you're underage, you're underage, um, and that's not something that you know. Kids who are underage should not be engaged in social drinking. But there are kids who are real, just by nature of their temperament, they're sensation seekers, they're impulsive, um, or the, or they're overwhelmed by their own emotional distress and some kids will look towards alcohol as a way as a release as a way to kind of numb out unfortunately and not have to think about um, what kinds of distress or what kinds of emotional factors they're dealing with so um, again there's also if you know in your family that somebody has been an alcoholic or there's some genetic predisposition then I mean the parents really are obliged to sit down with their kids from the age of probably 13 or 14 and have a conversation with the kids about, you know, 
you know, difficulties run in families. Some families are prone to heart disease. Some families are prone to diabetes. Some families are prone to an addiction, and they and it's it's really important to educate your kids about it, so um, so they can make a smarter choice when they're older. I think it's if you talk to your kids about these subjects, um, substance abuse, alcohol. If you, the, the more educated they are, the more chances they're going to make a smart decision for themselves. And I mean, I also encourage parents to tell their kids at the high school um, and middle school age, uh, you know, reinforce with your kids the idea that it it just takes one bad decision to regret something the rest of your life. You, know, you could be an amazing student and super responsible, but um, if when it comes to something that's illegal or dangerous, such as alcohol or, or drugs, you know, it really only takes one bad decision, unfortunately, and, and, and things can happen that you can't undo. People get harmed. People, you know, it, it, there there can be life and death situations. So the reason to talk to your kids about it is not to scare them because scare tactics really don't work, but to let your kids know that these are important decisions. There are many consequences um, for these kinds of sensation-seeking or impulsive behaviors that they they have to consider. Um, so you always want to give your kids some confidence and say that you know they have the ability to make the right decision for themselves. Um, and also say to your kids that it's important to be a leader among your peers. It's okay to be the one who says, nope, I'm not comfortable with that. Or you guys go ahead, but I'm not comfortable. I don't want to do that. Um, it's it's um, important to be able to say that when the student is with their peers and they Want to re- they want to resist the peer pressure and they're not sure how to do it. Well, that's certainly and and I think the exposure, the 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 opportunity to to, to say no and the opportunity to be at that risk, um, certainly the communication plays into that too. But in our community, the modern Orthodox you know Jewish mm-hmm. community specifically, there is so much exposure. Whether it's in everything from the liquor cabinet at home when somebody's mm-hmm. not home to mm-hmm. in shul, I'm a kiddish. I, Without mentioning any specifics, the shul that I spent uh, Simchas Torah in this year had two minyanim before hakafos. One was kind of more uh, organized and subdued, and the other, more quote-unquote Labadic minion, had a keg in the front of the minion. With, granted, somebody was operating the keg, mm-hmm. but I never thought in my life I would go to a shul mm-hmm. and see... I, forget about the fact that you see schnapps at a kiddush or mm-hmm. at a bris, whatever, mm-hmm. a wedding, but to see at a, at, at a, at a, at a Simchas Torah, mm-hmm. a... Uh, a keg in the front of the room, it was it was mind-boggling. Wow, wow. It was just mind-boggling. I remember turning to my friend and I said, it's not so much that it offends me that this is going on in Simchas Torah just because I'm not mm-hmm. that naive, mm-hmm. but just the shock value mm-hmm. is just... Uh, mm-hmm. So so um, I think that also transitions into one of the things I want to talk about, and that is, ki- and that is Kiddush clubs and drinking at Kiddush. Mm-hmm. Um, do you... You know, the youngest of Woodmere was famous for being the first um, to go dry. Mm-hmm. Um, are you a proponent of going dry? Or do you think that with communication, all of these things can 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 be, you know, successful in terms of being well, appropriate? Well, I think you have to talk in your family. Like, what are what are the traditions that your family, you know, what do you believe in? What do you think is important? Um, and, and you have to kind of establish that first and foremost. And then, you know, your own kids, you, as a family, you're going to make a decision about what you feel is acceptable or not. I think it's a personal decision, but I do think that um, people have to be very careful. Sometimes as parents, you really do have to lead by example, you know? Um, and so think about, parents need to think about their own behavior and, and, you know, what message are you sending your kids? 
um, just like, you know, to have the keg, you know, with, with, with beer flowing at, at the shul, like what, you know, think about what message is that really sending? And that, you know, I, I actually witnessed that firsthand. I was at a basketball game, a high school basketball game. It has nothing to do with drinking, but in terms of your behavior, I was at a high school basketball game. I coach a, a, a high school basketball team, but this was not a game we were playing, and I just happened to be at the game. And w- the parents were acting very rowdy, and mm-hmm. it was clear the distinction, the the, the carryover mm-hmm. from the parents' rowdiness, and actually parents were thrown out of the game. And then when students, when, when players would come off the bench, the game was getting out of control, they became wild, mm-hmm. and I was convinced watching this, there was nothing to... What 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 exactly was the spo- coach supposed to do if the parents were acting out? What are you going to say to the players to keep them under control? There's only so much you can do. Right. So I literally watched in front of my eyes parents, whether influence their own kids or other kids, because you know sometimes your friends' parents are just as influential on your behavior. Mm-hmm. And I was I, I was literally shocked. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe what I was watching. Um, and it and it and it just struck me that I think parents sometimes and and I'm not a parent, so it's easy for me to say, but. But when you you have to just the the pressure's on. Mm-hmm. Whatever you do is going to influence those things. So if you get drunk at a Friday night meal, even if your kid is too young or you're not going to give them liquor, mm-hmm. they're still watching you. So what are they going to do the next Saturday, Friday night? What are they going to do when you're mm-hmm. not around? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I do think you have to think about okay, what is my own behavior here, and what's what message am I sending to my kids? Speaking of our own behavior, um, I shared this story with you earlier when we were just uh, you know talking a little bit on the phone. But I want to share with everybody. I. Pesach uh, is behind us and, you know, the famous Pesach and tea rooms and discussions. I've been to many of these programs and prepped uh, some of my colleagues and bosses for these. Um, and uh, I heard a story about a panel that I want to share with you, get your reactions. Um, mm-hmm. And, again, I welcome everybody else's feedback at daniel at mm-hmm. um, Again, I'm joined by uh, Dr. Carol Levintrosser. So, Basically, on a uh, on a Pesach program, there was a panel, and the panel was about drinking in shul, just the topic we were discussing. And there were two people on the panel, one who was talking about how his shul uh, went dry and how successful that was and how big of a challenge it was. And the other was a leader from another shul, which actually is, is famous um, for its liquor. Uh, they have things like martini bars and things like that um, at their shul to get people. So the argument was about whether or not drinking is good and, and, and the the person from the shul that um, has all the drinking said, well, it brings people to shul and it turns into a social thing like the tennis club, which, you know, kind of like the uh, Heter Kirov um, excuse. So, but I don't, I don't want to get into that now. What, what the story that struck me about this whole thing, although that was disturbing of itself, was that in the middle, people were taking, um, they were taking questions and a woman stood up in the, in the audience and she said, just to defend, you know, the drinking side for a second, my husband works very hard. He has a very rough week and he comes home from work and it's, and it's okay that on Shabbos he has a couple of drinks to kind of let loose. So the panelists respond, and they call the next person. The next person is a high school senior in a New York day, in a New York metropolitan area, uh, you know, uh, day school. Uh-huh. And he stands up and he says the following: He says, "My question is not for the panel. My question is addressed at you, um, the woman who who just asked the panelists." He said, "Do you know what high school life is like now?" And you and I will discuss this in a little bit. But do you know what high school life is is like now? I have pressure socially girls and my friends i have extracurricular sports and the journal um, um and, and and the yearbook and the newspaper and i got to get my college um resume built and i got to get you know a 1600 on my sats and i have 4.0 gpa so i'm very stressed should i 17 year old high school senior in a modern orthodox day school whose parents put all their pressure on them should i start drinking mm-hmm. and the woman turned and said not until you're 21 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i i i don't even know i mean i think you're your speechlessness um, kind of tells it all. But 
what would you say? I, I, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious what the, uh, what the right answer is, but, but, but what would you say to, what does that say about our community and about kind of the re-education we have to do that people's reactions could possibly be that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the message is that, um, on some level that people feel entitled to drink, right? Or that, or what's, like, what's the function of drinking? Is the function of drinking to, is it your reward for working hard? That you should be able to sort of take the edge off whatever stress you're feeling. I mean, it's any anytime anybody has to justify how much they're drinking or why they're drinking, there's probably a problem there. You know, there's probably a problem there. Um, and 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 certainly, I mean, it is unfortunate that kids in this day and age at the high school level, yeah, there are lots of stressors there. There are thing, you know, situations for college entrants and jobs. It's much much more competitive. Um, there are a lot of stressors that go on in high school, but just, you know, high school is probably a little microcosm of what goes on in society at large. No matter how much stress you're under, there's, there's no way that it's really appropriate to say, okay, well, because I'm under the stress, I'm, I'm now entitled to a certain amount of alcohol or, I mean, to drink alcohol for the most part to say, okay, I'm going to get disinhibited or I'm going to sort of let go of the, my usual, code of appropriate behavior, right? Because everybody says, oh, that person is drinking. And we, we can, like, loosen up now. That's the expression, you know. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a dangerous message to send kids in a way that, okay, you know, you've been under stress for, you've got A, B, and C going on. I guess you, I guess you can let loose, and, and drinking is an appropriate way of, of coping with that. I mean, much more important for kids to feel like, okay, I'm under a lot of stress. Maybe I need to go to the gym and work out, or maybe I need to... Um, get together with my friends and, and go to the movie, or maybe I need to get together with my friends and process just how stressed out we are and talk about it. Um, or maybe at the school, you know, the guidance uh, departments need to be able to be talking to kids about the stress or the pressures of, of what it's like to be in high school. Um, and if not then, then when? I mean, the, the, the behaviors, I always said that although I, I think I did get a, a great high school education, mm-hmm. um, academically, I think some of the things I learned, my father always says that the number one thing he tried to teach his children um, when we were growing up was coping skills because he mm-hmm. thought that was a very important thing to learn. Mm-hmm. But in high school, I, well, who the 14th or 20th president of the United States was, I can find that out on Google. Right. But some of the more, you know, the, the the harder lessons in life, and that's how to deal with peer pressure, how to deal with, with stress, how to deal with pressure. Mm-hmm. If if we're teaching our kids that, that the way that we deal with stress is by doing X, Y, and Z in their formative you know, in their formative years where they're supposed to be learning, quote unquote, then mm-hmm. they're gonna learn those those topics, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean in most New York State high schools nowadays they have at least a one semester course in health. And as part of that curriculum, obviously, you know, there is discussion about smoking cigarettes and the dangers of that and, and, and substance abuse, alcohol abuse. Um, but it's often not enough, not enough. And, and I think the key for, for kids and adults alike is to know, to be able to tell when you're stressed by things, what, what do you do to soothe yourself? What do you do to release tension? What, what, what works for you? Do you need to sit down and veg out in front of the TV for a couple hours and watch a movie? Do you need to go for a bike ride? Do you need to go to the gym, you know, play tennis? What is it that is um, healthy, healthful for you um, that helps you relieve stress? How do you find that out? How do you find that out? I think by trying to exposing yourself to different things, trying trying out different activities, um, hopefully you're going to be involved enough with your school 
that you're not going to feel like the only thing to do on the weekends to get together with some friends and smoke weed or, you know, drink alcohol. Hopefully there'll be other more pro-social things. You'll be involved in the school play, and so you'll be working with kids on the weekend about that, or you'll be involved in sports, or maybe you're involved in music, um, or maybe you have a part-time job during your junior and senior year, and you, you, you know, have friends on your job, but whatever, you know, you have to be able to realize Yes, the academic piece is important, but it's important to be able to relax and try out some different, you know, try out, experiment with different activities. What, what do you like to do? I think, I mean, some, unfortunately, a lot of kids nowadays, um, I think it's a stereotype, but I think more high school boys than girls really turn to video games, and it's not really such a social activity. Um, even if you're playing online with people, often you're playing online with people who you don't even know, you've never met. Um, People are using video games as a way to kind of sit and self-soothe at home. And video game um, playing is literally has become addictive. And, and it has also turned dangerous. To what we were discussing before, you know, parents need to be mindful of how often, how much time you're going to allow your kids to spend playing video games. So I think what I'm gathering is that even if you see that your child has that outlet, mm-hmm. you have to watch. You also you can't just say, okay, my child's outlet is to watch TV. You have to obviously watch maybe what they're watching on TV and how much TV they're watching. In video games, it's not just, okay, this is their outlet, so it's okay for them to do it either for a certain amount of time or to do whatever they want on that because we've certainly seen that video games have led or allegedly led to some of the dangers um, and tragedies that we've seen in recent years. They say, mm-hmm. you know, they they play the video games and the video games have the violence, so it's not, you know, it's it still takes monitoring. It certainly it mm-hmm. makes me think about parenting as a much more daunting task mm-hmm. um, than it is a daunting task in the sense that you really are you're modeling a lot of things for your for your own kids and and it's responsibility to kind of give them the appropriate values you know to to become productive adults that that they can really take responsibility for themselves um, but you know and like I said before yes our kids at the high school level in Cotswold are they going to experiment yeah, they probably are going to experiment with substance, but if they understand just the biology of alcohol, for example, I mean, how many drinks per per hour could your body even physically metabolize? Um, they, they just need to know the basics, the ABCs of what is alcohol and what does it do um, to be able to make an important or, you know, a responsible decision for themselves. I mean, every year you hear, unfortunately, about these amazingly talented, bright kids at some of the top schools dying from alcohol poisoning. You know, MIT, um, Harvard. Yeah, I mean, it's just very sad that in some respects these kids are, are model students, but they probably didn't have any education in terms of, you know, alcohol, literally like the biology of what, how does your body handle alcohol, um, and what what makes sense if you think you need to experiment as a college student underage? Um, you know what 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 happens exactly when you do take a drink? And that I think has I think if if there's one thing that the community has been a little successful um, in, it, I think that's with cigarette smoking a little bit in terms of the fact that not only did the government you know force you know the prices up and things like that, which has helped, and I'm a proponent of that. But in terms of, like, just teaching people and educating people, I mean, I know um, I have a relative who was a very, very heavy chain smoker, and what got them to stop smoking was that their doctor showed them a picture of their lung mm-hmm. and said, your lung is actually supposed to be red mm-hmm. and yours is black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's just, 
there's, there's, there's no bones about it. And I think people realize that they saw people who smoked and they saw the voice box commercials as scary as they were. And even though I, you know, I, I do agree with you that scare tactics don't, don't work as much, mm-hmm. but it wasn't as much to scare people as it is to just educate them to say, right. if you smoke cigarettes, X will happen to you. But so too, if you drink, right. X will happen. I mean, how many people do, I, I don't know anybody, thank God, but who's ever had like liver failure, mm-hmm. um, from, from drinking, but it certainly could have happened. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why, you know, some of the people I know that drink an exorbitant amount, it shouldn't have happened to them. Mm-hmm. But so. you do hear, unfortunately, you, act, you know, every year you hear these really tragic stories about, um, kids at, at colleges, um, just drinking and, and, and dying from alcohol poisoning. And part of it is that they just could not have had any idea about what their blood alcohol level would be at, and what what does that mean? What does it mean to be to- you know, become toxic literally from too much alcohol in your body? Yeah, and um, it's 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 just very very scary. I think. Is, mm-hmm. is, is... But that's why you know communication. Talk to your kids. Don't don't pretend this thing doesn't happen or it's not going to happen to my kid or. Um, well, that's the classic. Not well, my that kid. That is the classic, and 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 I have to share you with, with you that. Um, that my own naivete about it. Here I am thinking, a psychologist, my husband's a psychologist, we've talked to our kids, we've communicated a great deal, and one of my kids had a, a New Year's Eve party in the house. Um, this is first year college, and there must have been 15, 20 kids, you know, in the house having a party. We were home as well, and oh, I wasn't like in the, you know, room where all the kids were partying, and some kids had come to the house and they were drunk when they arrived. And someone had thrown up in the bathroom and not cleaned it up. And, of course, I was aware of this. I was very mad about this. And in the conversation that I had with my daughter, my own bias, my own stereotype came out. Because I said, you know, who, who was that, those, those kids? I said, you know, and I said, where do they go to school? Because, of course, I had in my head the idea that what if, you're, if you're successful and you're going to this top academic school, you couldn't possibly be making stupid decisions like that. Where did she go to school, I said. My daughter said, Stanford. and i had to stop and think and realize yes even though these kids are intellectually bright and talented and have made some good decisions they're still kids and really until you're probably 24 25 your brain hasn't entirely myelinated your your your, really your executive decision making power is not is not totally completed um and that's that's why the insurance um companies, you know, the, the, the rates for insurance coverage for drivers will probably, they drop when kids turn, or people, adults rather, turn 24, 25, not when they're 18 and 19, because they're still prone to be making more impulsive decisions. Wow. Well, so, we... so it's always good to, to check out your own bias, your own stereotype. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, just in terms of parenting, I want to get to just one more thing quickly. We only have a few minutes left. Mm-hmm. Again, you're listening to the uh, the Stun Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Daniel Gordon. I'm joined by Dr. Carol Leventrosser. Um, a story that came across, and it really struck me about parenting and pressure and communication, all those things that, that we've been discussing, but even without drugs and alcohol and all those other, you know, kind of more out there and, and, and popular and in some ways, you know, sexy topics. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about the story of Susie Lee Weiss. So just to give everybody a little background. So last week there was a young high school senior named Susie Lee Weiss who wrote an op-ed, uh, a, a, an, an open letter, I'm sorry, that was published in the Wall Street Journal to the Ivy League universities that rejected her. And it sparked a firestorm of anger when readers um, accused her of being entitled, whiny, and even racist. Mm-hmm. Um, others praised her um, for her honesty and accuracy. And basically the story was that she wrote the piece after she was rejected from a string of uh, 
Ivy League schools, including Princeton, Yale, Vanderbilt, and Penn, um, in one day, despite her 4.5 GPA. Don't know how you get that, but she must be really smart. Mm-hmm. Um, an SAT score of 2120 and work experience with the U.S. Senate, this whole thing. And basically in her article, she said that not getting into school, uh, the reason that she didn't get in was because she was, quote, not diverse enough, suggesting that her white-skinned business owner parents and good education worked against her in the application process. Um, and she also said that her parents, and this really struck me, um, she said, quote, as the youngest of four daughters, I've noticed lo- I noticed long ago that my parents gave up on parenting me. My parents also left me with a dearth of hobbies that make admissions committee salivate. I've never sat down at a piano, never plucked a violin. So she said that before writing the letter, she had been crying to her mother, who complained that she had heard too much moaning and told her to speak to someone else. So who'd she call? Her sister, a former a former assistant editor of the op-ed section of Wall Street Journal, who said she should write it and send the article out. And in turn, the article led to job offers and internships. Mm-hmm. And since it's published, it's, she's gotten attacked all over. But what struck me was, number one, the pressure that she felt to get in, mm-hmm. and number two, the inability to cope with not getting in. Mm-hmm. And she blamed it on her parents not being there, but I think that's that's probably one reason. But just my reading, again, uh, you're the expert on this, not me. It seemed that she was never taught or, or exposed to dealing with these types of mature feelings that we put on our children at 16, 17, and 18 that, as you said, their their brains haven't even matured enough to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I don't really know the, the exact specifics of her situation, but it is true that, I mean, I don't really think her parents could have been so asleep at the wheel if they were. I don't think she probably would have been, had all those amazing grades and, and had the resume that she had applying to those schools. So, I mean, just personally, I can't buy the idea that sort of like her parents, by the time they got to her, that they just you know hadn't done what they were supposed to do. <laughs> that seems a little absurd to me. Um, I think it's a teachable moment that that... Kids have very, very high expectations these days and a pretty powerful sense of entitlement. And even when you have all the right credentials, not everybody gets that golden, you know, the brass ring. Not not everybody gets what they want. And it's it's very frustrating. I'm sure she feels like, I'm sure she has the credentials that are just as wonderful as students who did get into some of those top schools. Um, and I, you know, who, who knows what all the admissions criteria were at each of those schools? I don't know, but um, it, it's it's a teachable moment in a way that wow, like after I did all that, I the thing that I thought I was entitled to get, I, I wasn't given, I wasn't granted. Um, it's 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 a very bitter pill, I'm sure, for her to take. Um, but I mean, in some respects, she's already adaptively coping with it, right? I mean, she found a way to vent it and discuss it and process it with her sister, and she came public with an opinion about this. Um, and so she's probably going to, there's probably going to be some silver lining in all of this, I would assume, you know. I, but I how, imagine. if at all, could she have been prepared for it? I mean, nobody wants to give, to, to reject their, you know, children. Nobody wants to on purpose do that. But let's say she has been the successful. She has all the grades and all the credentials. So obviously... That's very rare that nobody gets rejected from anything. I mean, Michael Jordan was cut from his, like, middle school or high school basketball team. Mm-hmm. But how do you then teach your children that if, if they are succeeding and if you are helping them succeed and then all of a sudden the shock comes in? So, so do you, is, is there anything you could think of to prepare for that possible moment? Of not getting into what you wanted to get into, you know? Yeah, I mean, if, you've, if she's gotten into everything throughout and then all of a sudden that comes, so how do you teach along the way, you know, if the opportunities don't present themselves until that moment? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Other than, I guess, communicating and saying, you know, 
you're lucky that you have this and not everybody gets that and, you know, congratulations, but just know that, you know, you worked very hard for it, but this is not always going to be that way. Well, I think that, you know, I think it's really important to praise your child's effort if they did the best they could and they applied and they did everything they needed to do in terms of writing their essay and and interviewing and, and figuring out what schools they... I mean, these schools are probably reach schools for kids. So even kids who are applying to these reach schools, usually they're also advised to have a couple safety schools, right? I mean, nobody could expect to apply to an Ivy League school and get in. Yeah, I don't know if she didn't get into any college, but she certainly seems very disappointed about not getting to these colleges. Right, right. So, I mean, there, there are lots of possibilities. The other thing is that, you know, lots of kids don't get into an Ivy League school for their freshman year. They go someplace else, and it's much, much easier to transfer in for second year to an Ivy League school. It's it's not as demanding. So I mean, I think Or to make it in life without the Ivy League school. Yes, or exactly, exactly. Um, you know, it, it's... Um, it's a, it's a feather in people's cap if they do have that, but I mean, in some respects for some people when they don't have that credential, it makes them want to go out all the much more hard, work more harder at, at getting what they want to get from life. So I think it's a teachable moment. I think that it's, no one wishes that frustration on their kid for a second. It's very painful, I think, for parents to see their kids get disappointed and not get what they want. Um, but there, there has to be some way that you model for your kids that if you get lemons that you find some way to make lemonade or that you that you put it you know that it's a problem but it doesn't have to be a life-defining catastrophe you know to, to, to give it some context that is an amazing amazing lesson to make lemonade out of lemons um, and <laughs> i couldn't yes, think of a better real- way um just as a little teaser for my uh for my for my closing monologue that's certainly something that um that i'm going to talk about and i i really want to thank you so much, uh, Doctor. Again, today's guest was Dr. Carol Leventross. I want to thank you so much, Doctor, and thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to uh, hopefully learning so much more from you because I learned so much here this evening. Terrific. My pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Be well. You too. So uh, because, that was, again, Dr. Carol Leventrosser. Um, because of Sphera and uh, the Nachum Siegel Network's uh, music policies, we are going to break with tradition, and actually we are going to play a non-country song I see everybody frowning here in the studio. They're not going to play country music, booze and everything. Um, but today, tonight's song is Kisha Halev Bocheh by the Maccabees. I ask you, as always, um, if you could stop what you're doing and pause for 4 minutes and 45 seconds to take it all in. I will, as always, react afterwards. <laughs>
Why did I choose this song for tonight's show? First of all, there are no, there are almost no acapella country songs, but it's much more than that. Last night I went to visit a close relative who was just diagnosed with cancer. On my way home, I turned on the Maccabee CD, and this song was the second song to play. As I listened to the words, it struck me how appropriate this song was for me at this moment and at that moment, and for all of us at points in our lives. Sometimes we are faced with situations and just don't know where to turn. How do we react? For the last two weeks, I have reacted by looking to God and saying, Shema Yisrael Elokai, listen to me, God. Atah Koyacho, you can do anything. And then Shema Yisrael Elokai, listen to me, God. Achshav Ani Levad, now, now I am alone. I have nowhere else to turn. Chazekoti Elokai, Aseh Shalo Strengthen me. Make it so that I do not fear. 
So how often do we really feel and believe this? How often do we turn to God as our everything to thank Him, to speak to Him, to beg and to plead with Him? I know many times I certainly don't. And yet, as I look back at the last two weeks and ahead at the future, I know He will take care of me and of my family. I hope my wake-up call can serve as yours and inspire all of you. As I mentioned on the very first stunt show, I hope we all go through our days, the good and the bad, knowing we are not alone. And while we may make our own decisions, we each have the greatest teammate in the world, the master of the world, guiding us along the way, no matter what. You have been listening to the stunt show on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am Daniel Gordon, and as always, thank you making, for making us part of your evening, week, and month. Coming up next in just four minutes it is the Thursday Night Extravaganza with Nachum Siegel. Join Nachum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 a.m. as he hosts JM in the AM live here on NachumSiegel.com and on 91.1 FM. Make sure to tune in as he is joined by Malcolm Honline for his weekly update. And don't miss Saturday Night Siegel, hosted by Avrami Finkelstein, live here on the stream, as well as at NachumSiegel.com, Saturday night at 10 p.m. This show will be rebroadcast Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on the Nachum Siegel Network here at NachumSiegel.com. Tune in next week at this time for the next edition of The Stunt Show with Gorf, Jordan B. Gorfinkel. And at the beginning of next month, when you pay your bills and check the batteries in your smoke and carbon monoxide detectors, although I think I'm on at the end of next month, remember to tune in to me on The Stunt Show four weeks from tonight at 6 p.m. Thank you, David. As always, it's a pleasure working with you. I like it much better on the road, but I'm sure you like it much better in the studio. Thank you to Dr. Carol Leventrasser for joining me this evening. I learned so much and uh, hope that I can just internalize and grow from all that we spoke about this evening. In case you forgot, tonight's song was Kisha Lev Bocheb by the Maccabees. Next month, we'll be back with country music. And bring your tissues, because I'll make sure it's a special one. Once again, I welcome your honest feedback and comments at Daniel at NachumSiegel.com. That's D-A-N-I-E-L at NachumSiegel.com. I hope you have gained something from this hour, and I hope that this show will gain its inspiration and, contact from, and content from you, the listeners. It's only appropriate that I close with the same quote I've used each month from the late, great Jimmy Valvano, founder of the Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer Research, and an inspiration to me. There are three things we should do every day, Valvano said. Number one is laugh, number two is think, and number three is have your emotions move to tears. Could be happiness or joy, but think about it. If you laugh, you think, and you cry, that's a full day. That's a heck of a day. You do that seven days a week, you're going to have something special. That's how I try to live my life, and I hope that this hour has been as special for you as it's been for me. Stay tuned for the Thursday Night Extravaganza with Nachum Siegel. See you next month. Goodbye.